You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. If you've never seen this animal, you don't know what you're missing. This, this thing, I called it the Arnold Schwarzenegger of buffalo, bison, cattle. And yes! What can they teach us? All the muscle that's laid down around the spinous process to attach to the scapula and the cervical vertebra and, the, and then the rib cage. I mean, they need it to be strong, right? That's a given. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to the Our Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. And welcome back, friend. It's been a while. I know. Yeah. Too long. No uh, no see. We always talk all the time, but we don't mm. usually get to see each other over video chat like we do when we record. So, yes, uh, we're coming back strong with an yes. amazing species, the Gower, uh, which is just, I have like 50 slides. We won't get to them all, I promise. Mm-hmm. So don't turn the podcast off right now. It's just Fun. It's a bovid species, which is right up Chris and I's alley. And truth be told, Chris, I can't believe the Gower has escaped me this long. Yeah, yeah, especially you with your your hooves and horns. This hooves is... and horns, baby. And I've neglected the mm. the the Gower has not been in my life uh, until recently. Uh, and for those of you to help give you a picture briefly of what we're talking about here in the intro, the Gower is also called the Indian bison. So this is a Bison-like bovine cattle species, the biggest in the whole family, bigger than the water buffalo, than our American bison. I mean, and their horns, you know, I love my horns. Mm -hmm. And uh, yes, I just, I... I just recently learned about this species, and I cannot believe that it's been missing in my life. So because of that, I spent a lot of time, and I really did my research because I fell in love with them, and I read paper after paper after paper, and I actually have some more. I think I sent you the one mm-hmm. about uh, bovine species and placentation and how uh, how placentas and hooves and horns matter. Uh, yeah. So we won't talk about that one. The- <laughs> <laughs> email me if you're a real yeah, big nerd yeah, 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 yeah. uh but yeah this is just a really cool species and they have an incredible conservation story uh not unlike our american bison or american buffalo mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. yeah they're they're still considered vulnerable by the iucn and anywhere from 20 to 35,000 living all over southwest asia so please stick around if you're not familiar with the gower or even if you are we're going to make you fall in love today because this, and this is a handsome, handsome bovine species as well. You, and when you say bison, you don't, if, if you've never seen this animal, you don't know what you're missing. This, this thing, I called it the Arnold Schwarzenegger of buffalo, bison, cattle. And yes, yeah. yes. Well, that's, it's, it's a real, I mean, the, the females are gorgeous too, but the males are, they're both just stunning, stunning specimens and they're super muscular. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, if you like looking at muscles, which really who doesn't, I mean, this is the species for you. They are ripped. Yeah. And what I learned too, Chris, is um, Red Bull, the energy drink sold mm-hmm. here in North America, the two bulls that are, had their horns kind of going at each other. Mm-hmm was actually uh created with the uh gower in mind yeah no it's they're massive i mean they are big big boys and girls and we're going to talk about that the biggest yeah yeah and their conservation too because they are vulnerable to extinction and we'll talk about some of the great things india is doing uh, with conservation you know it, and, yeah. and angie's got yeah. an amazing and thailand up. and yeah, yeah a, lot of the, a lot of the countries yeah yeah so they're doing some great work down there uh, just real quick, just want to give a shout out to Amber, you know, who we had a wonderful call yesterday with. Who's Hi, Amber. Thank yes. you. Yes. 
She's going to be helping us on the podcast. Uh, Alexander, thank you for the kind words uh, about my fathers. And then a shout out to Adam, who reached out to us and is doing some great conservation work in the U.S. And I just want to give a big high five to JRS4800, who left us an amazing review on iTunes, uh, saying that they love our podcast. And it's always nice when fans subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes because it helps get our numbers up and, of course, get this podcast out to more people as it helps increase the circulation of our podcast. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. And I'm, you know, in, in last week, we the, the new podcast I started, Mad About Horses, I have it with your blessing and it's it's not going to disrupt all creatures again. So if you're into horses and bovids and, and any species, check that one out. Mad about horses, please uh, subscribe and give me some feedback on that. Because I've been doing a horse podcast, coming into a bovid podcast, there's just so many things are kind of overlapping. So it was, it was so much fun to do the research on this Gower Angie starting off with the description, I was sitting there like, how are you going to describe that muscle? Because the muscling, it isn't like, I mean, it literally, uh, you know, you look at some of the pictures that hump, it, it looks, looks like fake. a bicep. It does look fake. It, it looks fake. And then yeah. that's the only way I, c- I can describe it. And so when you picture a bison, let's just say, Mm-hmm. They have that hump, and I have a whole slide or two, maybe three, about the hump physiology. Mm-hmm. So stick with me uh, if you love humps and horns. I have a couple slides just about their horns, but mm-hmm. just generically, that's very massive around their neck and withers is what we call it in the horse, but uh, where uh, their thoracic vertebra is very they're built up, and but around it, which I guess with. American bison, they're so hairy, uh, especially in the winter months. You can't see it, but the muscling on the Indian bison or the gaur is incredible. And it's the trapezius and the elasticimus mm-hmm. dorsi, and it is ripped, like rip ripped. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, please go to our show notes or Google a photo of these beautiful beasts. But Yes, they have this this shoulder hump and just massive, massive muscles. And like I said, because it's such a distinguishing feature, we're going to talk more about that when we get to fun physiology facts. But in general, the color of the Indian bison is going to be a dark reddish brown to blackish brown color with white stockings. So all my horse lovers out there, we always love when we see that in horses, right? Like when they have a solid color and then like, and then the white stockings, we call them. So it was really cool to see this on a, on a bovid species and their horns are stunning as well. Very, very massive. And remember this is a wild bovine. So they all have males and females have these horns and they're large and they're long and they curve inwards towards each other. And on the middle of the head is this convex bump in between the two horns, which also makes their head, when they're looking at you, very, very prominent. And just to put a little more visual on the horns, the male Indian bison, each horn will be about 61 to 96 centimeters. Mm-hmm. And the spread from tip to tip uh, will be anywhere from 89 to 134 centimeters. So, uh, pretty, pretty substantial. I don't think as big as like, um, a water Buffalo in Africa, Hmm. uh, because I also read too, that they can weigh anywhere from like 20 to 30 pounds. Uh, I think that's really massive. I think there may be more on the the 20 pound side. Uh, it was hard for me to find a lot of details on that where I know from water Buffaloes, uh, cause I used to have a educational horn that I would use when I get tours back, back in the day as a zookeeper, uh, that one was about 26 pounds, just one of them. So, but in, yeah, yeah, but in general, you think about why they have to have such strong neck muscles Mm -hmm. is if you have, even if you just have 40 pounds of horn on your head, Yeah, I mean, that is, let alone a big, let, and then they're, you know, and then a a big head too, as far as the weight of the skull and all in the brain, all the things Mm -hmm. in there. Uh, I mean, that's a lot to lift up Yeah, and down, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so, why they're so. Yeah, that's why they're so big. I mean, they're just they're, they are the biggest bovid in the world, and uh, the the length of just the body is anywhere from eight to twelve feet. So that's over three and a half meters just in the length. So that's the size of a car, right? Weight up to the males 
you know, obviously bigger than the females, up to 3,300 pounds. So that's a, a ton and a half or 1,500 kilograms. And so they are the size of a car, basically, you know. Yeah. Females can get pretty big, big too. I mean, they're usually about 25% smaller. Yeah. Or I should say way less uh, yeah. than the males, but still some big, beautiful girls. Yeah. I mean, they can weigh up to a ton, 2,200 pounds, mm-hmm. up to. Uh, height at the withers, you were talking about that big muscle, uh, almost seven feet or 2.2 meters. So taller than me. I couldn't see over them. Uh, I have yet to, to to find a cow that I've worked with that I couldn't see over their withers or the back. Wow, that's a really good visual, Chris. Think, yeah. yeah. Wow, yeah. That's so, that's really impactful to me. It's a big, big, yeah. big animal. Mm-hmm. Very big animal. And then, of course, we would be amiss to not mention the tail. Uh, so the tail of the Indian bison can range anywhere from 0.7 to one meter. So yeah, three feet. That's a big tail. Mm-hmm. It's a big, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a big bovid. It's, it's, I can't call it. It's not a cow. It's bison. It's, it's a bovid. It's, it's huge. Uh, looking at where they live. Now we've already said some of this in India, Thailand, uh, historical range, South and South East Asia, they were everywhere, but because of human population explosion and everything, they're really getting squeezed out where 85% of the population now is in India. Mm-hmm. There is some rewilding. I'm going to get to that. Now, they usually like these evergreen forests, semi-evergreen deciduous trees. Uh, but, you know, this habitat, the, these forests that they live in, but altitudes up to almost 6,000 feet or 1,800 meters. Yeah, I was really impressed by yeah. that. I, I, I mean, it makes sense in the different areas where they live, but... Yeah. And of course, with human uh, human urbanization and farming and agriculture, they have been seen now encroaching more into like farm grasslands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and whenever we talk about this region of the world, I, I just always go back to Asian elephants. And, you know, it's like they just their habitats are just shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. But India is doing some good work. So if you're going to look for them today, I mean, obviously you'd go to India because there is some ecotourism with, with them. That is a benefit. Uh, Nepal, Myanmar, uh, Thailand, Laos, all of that region of Southeast Asia, but but in pockets, not this wide range. There isn't a wide range. Yeah, so very in small, small numbers in Cambodia, Vietnam, mm-hmm. China, uh, uh, definitely small little pockets in China. Yeah. Um, Malaysia, Sri Lanka. Uh, yeah. 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 There. Now, reading the research on, on why care, I mean, these are large grazers. They, they do... Uh, you know, make make a big difference. One of the things that we, when we talk about these grazers is they clear paths for other herbivores like spotted deer. So they were saying like grazing areas where these other herbivores can come in and get some food because these larger herbivores are, are clearing out little pockets of, of vegetation uh, for, for them to eat. And I did watch a video on it the other day I, I saw a tiger take down a, a female gower. So they are a prey species for our big cats, which, you know, the, the tigers are endangered. They're going extinct. So it's important that we keep the synergy going in these ecosystems and these wild areas to make sure it's it's healthy. Well, absolutely. I mean, without a doubt, gowers are ecosystem engineers. I mean, like Chris said, besides from clearing the land and moving around a lot because they're so large with a large size and large feet and stuff like that, but also with their diet, they help disperse seeds uh, throughout their various feeding habits and what they eat. And we'll talk more about that when we get to nutrition because they are grazers, but they're also browsers and eat some fruit. And so, and they are pretty flexible, which is awesome um, and gives me hope for their, uh, their survival here in the future. But uh, yeah, I mean, they can really, really shape uh, the structure of the forest. And I couldn't find any research on it, but I would, I would imagine for certain plant species, they really help those plant species uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to be able to pass on their genetics and keep growing and shape the forest. And then, of course, uh, gowers 
have cultural significance throughout South Asia. Uh, it's considered a symbol of strength and power and fertility. Uh, and it's often displayed in artwork and uh, it's talked about in folklore and mythology. So it's just a very well-loved species for because of its strength and beauty and size and all of that. And so uh I obviously fell in love with it this week and I should have been knowing it my whole life. <laughs> so, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, most people that are familiar with it do want to help save and protect it, which is why it is a feel good story. I think Chris, after looking at all the data this week, for the most part, uh, there's of course still some threats with uh, poaching for those mm. horns and, and probably for meat and uh, a little bit of maybe human uh, conflict going on. But mm. In a lot of areas, in most of the areas, uh, they are protected in reserves. And Chris, I was really happy this week too to uh, to find a fair amount of um, scientific articles based on their nutrition, mm-hmm. their habitat, where they're living, their genetics. So, whenever I see that for a species, it also it also makes me uh, very hopeful that there's so many different people, not only conservation organizations or NGOs. Uh, fighting for them, but also scientists, and it means everybody's working together. Uh, and just just a quick little shout out uh, before we really dive deep into uh, the evolution and uh, some of the physiology and reproduction. A lot of my information today came from uh, an amazing paper that I read uh, called Boss Frontalis and Boss Garis. Uh, and it was in a journal called Mammalian Species um, from 2016. And the author was Farsid S. Aristani. And the paper can be found at www.mammalogy.org. And it was the dream paper for nerds yeah. like me and you to do this yeah, podcast yeah. because it had everything and all the references. And so, uh, yeah. So anyways, I just wanted to, to reference that for anybody else who wants some light reading. Later yeah, this evening. Yeah, as you go to bed. <laughs> well, before I, I bring you up, because there is some good stuff with, with the Gower, just have to give some uh, news that, that's been posted this week and why we care about each species we cover each each and each and every week that we do this podcast. And that was it, it, probably some people, a lot of you have probably seen this headline uh, 21 species removed from the endangered species list due to extinction. Well, Chris, I saw it. And when I read it the mm. first, because I speed read things, and I, I read the first sentence, and I'm like, awesome. And then I read the second part of the sentence. Yeah. Yeah, usually like, you think it gets delisted, like, oh, right. the population's good. Right. No, these got uh, taken off the list because they're extinct. We can't find any of them left. So... Again, going back to episode one of this podcast, the background extinction rate should be don't about do two- it. It's really bad. <laughs> <laughs> don't listen to it, but people do. But uh, I talk about the background extinction rate should be two species a year. Here you have twenty species that just in the U.S. that have gone extinct. I know Australia. A few months back, I think we talked about it in a podcast, declared like 15 to 20 species extinct. So our background extinction rate is way above and beyond what's normal. That's why we're in this six mass extinction. And to bring this home, I'm, I'm going to play the last call of a species. I've, I've done this before, I think. But if you if you haven't heard it, it really hits hard. So I'm going to play it real quick and then we'll talk about this this bird. That's the last male of a species singing for a female who will never come. So that one always gives me chills. That was the last call of the Kauai O'O bird, and that was recorded in 1987. That male was calling uh, for a female that wasn't there, and he died the same year. So that was the last of the species. but. Again, to declare a species as extinct, it takes many decades to look for it, possibly somewhere deep in the in the forests or wherever these animals are, and they have not found any more OO birds, so they are now declared extinct with this list. 
Uh, the only mammal on the list was the little Mariana fruit bat from Guam. And I know John, your husband, does some work with the Guam rail because of invasive snakes. I think we talked about that many years ago. Yeah, the brown tree snake. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. So uh, these invasive species on these island nations have been really bad. So that's the only mammal that is on the list in the U.S. territories. The other animals extinct I'd like to read out because, you know, I want to acknowledge their existence on this planet and sadly, they're they're gone. Uh, the Bachman's warbler bird that was in Florida and South Carolina is now extinct. The bridled white eye bird, the Kauai Akioloa bird, and I apologize if I'm saying these these names wrong. Uh, the Kauai Nukapu bird. I already mentioned the OO. The Kauai thrush bird, the Maui uh, Kepa bird, the Maui Nukapu bird the Molokai creeper and the Po'olui bird. So a lot of, a lot of from Hawaii. Yeah. yeah just got wiped out. We yeah. might, we should maybe get a, um, an expert bird. out here to talk more about that. Yeah. Yeah. What's going on over there? Cause I know both you and I love Hawaii. The San Marcos, uh, Gambusia is a fish in Texas extinct. The Skiado mad Tom fish out of Ohio, the flat pig toe mussel, Alabama, Mississippi is extinct. The southern acorn shell, the stirrup shell, both mussels in the Gulf region near you, upland comb shell, mussel, Alabama, Georgia, Tennessee, the green blossom pearly mussel, Tennessee and Virginia, and the tubercold blossom pearly mussel, all mussels, uh, turgid blossom pearly mussel, yellow blossom pearly mussel, Alabama, Tennessee, Arkansas, so these, I think these freshwater mussels, probably just pollution, you know, pollution in our streams and rivers or freshwater. I think the freshwater stuff that's going on, we've had a couple experts on the podcast. That's, that's a silent extinction, not getting a lot of love like our oceans are. And, you know, maybe you and I need to, to go back into our freshwater fishes or, or species in, in the U.S. and highlight, highlight some of those and talk about uh, just, just general pollution, you know, runoff from farms, and I see we see it here in New Zealand, you know, poisoning and and, and killing off these species. Oh, and all the pharmaceuticals we have that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Runoff here in Florida. Yeah. <laughs> where I yeah. Live. Where we we go and our waste is recycled, and you can't get out all the compounds. I remember sitting through a seminar ten years ago talking about all the fish changing uh, sex ratios and stuff because of uh, progesterone and, and some reproductive hormones that are flushing through our sewer systems. So yeah, freshwater systems are, are, are in desperate uh, straits. So and we see in the, the extinction list. Now, our goal is not to add, add the gower to that world extinction list. So to give you some good news, they are vulnerable to extinction, but the population could be as high as 30,000. So we're not in, in dire straits like some of these critically endangered species. 85% are in India. And, and, and as Angie and I, Angie's already said, some of the threats to them, cattle diseases is another one. Sure. Yeah. And I think you're going to talk about genetics in a little bit too. For, mm-hmm. So for some of these species that... Uh, have declined really rapidly. I mean, the gower has declined like 70% in the last century. I mean, it's been a, a pretty big downturn and there is some upticks now and it's and we've and, and people are working really really hard on that, but when when situations like this arise, the uh, genetic diversity usually declines and then you get the population to grow and the numbers to grow, which is great. But something like a disease could wipe them all out, right? Uh, they don't have their immunity is uh, very similar, not different. So yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's. Yeah. It, and you teed that up perfectly for me. So thank you. It, it's there, there was a paper that uh, it's coincidence of low genetic diversity in wild gower populations in Thailand. So uh, it was in PLOS one just published last August. And it does always bring me back to that Saiga story. And I was just remembering 
a few months back, I was able to talk to Tom Hugh Jones, uh, producer of Big Beasts that's on Disney Plus. And I asked him because he was a producer for Planet Earth 2 when they went out to film this mass migration of the Saiga in the central plains of Asia and 200, 300,000 of them just dropped dead in a matter of weeks because of this disease, uh, fungus, fungal disease that attacked the respiratory system. They didn't have the genetic diversity to withstand disease. So in this paper, they're looking at the, the Gower in Thailand. And because there's such low numbers, it's really tough for them uh, to, to breed and spread your, your, their genetics. The good news on this story is this particular reserve in Thailand, the wild Gower populations went from 35 to 300 in 30 years. And they're, now that they're, they're kind of outside this area, there is some wildlife human conflict, but ecotourism, these other things are helping boost them. So Thailand's looking for ways to uh, improve genetic diversity. And, and one thing I think they can do, and we're learning in other parts of the world when we're, we're doing the, these interventions with low genetic diversity is we can introduce some outside animals, but they're subspecies. So, you know, then it gets into some questions on that for, for the people doing that. The other good news for the Gower, I mean, even though their, their genetic diversity is low in those populations, the good news is there is research. We're not forgetting about them. And no, definitely not. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. There's a lot. Of, they're, they're paying close attention. They're, uh, they're uh, heavily protected mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. India and Thailand yeah. and a lot of countries within their range. So it's definitely hopeful. Yeah. Well, and, and you're right. India is putting a lot into conservation. Uh, in central I- India, in the Sanjay Dubri Tiger Reserve, they've reintroduced Gower there. They've put in uh, 50... Uh, into their original habitat uh, with help of the external wildlife experts. So India is is doing all these great things. We had the Asiatic lions. Angie's got an amazing interview coming out soon with a dole expert. There is a lot of good conservation going on in India. And I know that the tiger population is the Bengal tiger population is, is going up. And then the other place that we always love to talk about is Nepal and the Gower populations in this, uh, it's Chitwan and Parsa National Park has gone from 188 to 388 in 20 years in Chitwan, and then from 37 to 164 in just 10 years in Parsa. So this isn't a, a species people are forgetting about, that it's, it's very beloved in that part of the world, and they're really doing a lot to save them. So that's very good. And in this segment, even though I started with really bad news, 21 species that now went extinct, some good news. One of the areas that I keep seeing articles about is this rewilding going on around the world. One place is in the UK. Uh, just last uh, last week, I saw uh, an article about rewilding in the UK. And it I, the, the beaver is one of them. They've reintroduced the beaver there. That's great. But all these other little tiny species, insects, plants, small animals, uh, birds, they're reintroducing in parts of the UK. So it's not uh, just the big species like the gower that, that's getting the love. It is these other little smaller species too. So, so chin up. We're going to keep doing this. We're going to keep fighting for these species. And even though we get the bad news, we've got... We've got good news and a lot of people around the world and a lot of people care like people listening to this podcast. So thank you for that. Yes, for sure, Chris. Very well said. And I think the the Gower is a feel-good story. And I was really hopeful this week diving into the literature, which is always fun too, because then I feel if the conservation story is is improving and 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 there's a lot of uh, people studying it, then I then I can really nerd out about all the physiology facts. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. their vertebral column and, and that. Well, kind we're of gonna stuff, get so. there. Yeah we're, yeah, we're gonna get there. We're gonna we're gonna get there. I'm really excited to learn what you researched, Angie, and I think this is a good place for a quick break. And we'll get through evolution, and then we'll get talking about this big hump and and what it is and how they use it. 
Welcome back. All right, so evolution, one of my favorite topics, obviously, and uh, you know, I just been my head's been a lot of horse evolution. Angie and I were just talking about that in the break. It's just like it just fascinates yes, me. We are that nerdy. Yeah, <laughs> you get a two minute break and you're and still talking about uh, these creatures, science, and and mm-hmm. everything. Evolution is just fascinating. Right, so. The Gower, Artiodactyla, these are even-toed ungulates, one of Angie's favorites. The 270 land-based species. And then, always with the Artiodactyla, we have, who else in this order? So we have the land-based. I ask you this every podcast, and I'm sure somebody out there is screaming at their car. (laughs) Angie, okay. I, and I can't do sounds like deet, 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 or, or, or I'm uh, I know the answer. I'm just making you no, you're not sweat and do it? charades. <laughs> the whales and dolphins, okay, okay. the cetaceans, yes. okay, cetaceans, cetaceans. Okay, ninety four. Not cetaceans, cetaceans. That's the parrot. Yeah. yeah. Huh. The cetaceans. Okay, cetaceans, cetaceans. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. always whales, dolphins, porpoises, 94 species. I can't do sounds, so there you go. I mean, that, you're right. Oh, yeah, you got to work mm-hmm. on it. But okay, I, I appreciate like your you. effort, and <laughs> it's it's fun to make you smile and watch you do some weird charades. That was a weird <laughs> charade for a dolphin, Chris. All right. That's all it, I'm was e- say. it was easy to do the, the moose when we did the moose a few yeah, podcasts exactly. back. Okay. Uh, families Bovidae, 143 species. So, you know, not only are bison, buffalo, antelope, sheep, goats, musk, musk oxen. You could be here for the next couple of years just yeah. doing this. Yeah, I love the, the Bovidae. There's a lot, of, a lot of cool animals in there. And then the genus is boss. So traditionally five species, but yeah, there's some debate up to 10. But And that, that's including if you include bison in there. And then we get down to boss garus, garus, boss garus. I would say boss garus for the gaur. And there are three subspecies. So we were just talking about that. So in India, Nepal, and Bhutan is boss garus garus in china vietnam laos and thailand boss garus reet ready and then the malaysia one is hubaki boss garus hubaki so there are three different species the other bovids species or subspecies subspecies yeah so there are others there are three subspecies now when we well, think well I know we that that's kind of what we think, but then paper Genetics. I was reading that I talked about earlier yeah. in mammalogy said that the genetic analysis is not conclusive. There you go. There you go. So always, always they genetics. think there's not quite enough evidence, whoever they is, uh, to split B. gauris into three into subspecies. Okay. Okay. Well, then maybe they can. If if not, then maybe they they can reintroduce some of those Indian gowers to uh, Thailand because mm-hmm. they need some genetic diversity to save the species. They're probably going to have to do that anyways. Uh, when you think of the genus Boss, we think of our cows, our moose. So we have our Boss Indicus cattle and Boss Taurus. Boss Taurus is generally our European breeds, a little bit hardier in the cold. We have them down here in New Zealand. Our boss Indicus are like zebu cattle. Uh, they are w- more warm. So Africa and uh, They do better South. here in Florida. Yeah, they do really well in Florida. Then you have uh, the Bontang, which is a bovid species. Then our bison, you can kind of split it out to American bison, European or wizent bison. The yak and then the buffalo. We've done the Cape buffalo and like you said, water buffalo. Uh, bovids, uh, even toed ungulates emerged 60 million years ago. Once the dinosaurs went away and earth could recover and whatever little mammals could survive, they emerged and over millions of years, we start to get our, our small little, uh, even toed ungulates where we start to get some bovids or bovidae in Africa. We start to see some evidence 23 million years ago. So species that kind of resemble bovids uh, where they have horns, things like that. They Most of the species came from Africa, so that's where this evolution is taking place. Like I just talked about in the horse evolution last week, uh, horses 
or in, if you didn't listen to it, Mad About Horses and, and the one you had to go to, to the origins of the horse. Horses, rhinos evolved in North America and migrated into Asia where the bovids originated in Africa and migrated out into Europe and Asia. So uh, really, really interesting uh, the evolution. And then when you go specifically to the Gower, when we start to filter this down, really Angie's the one that found this fact for me because I was talking to her before and I'm like, I just couldn't really find anything specific, but they think Gowers are like 2 million years old, one to 2 million years old. So they're, they're ancient cattle. These aren't, this isn't a breed that emerged 500,000 years ago, like humans or species. This is a, a, a species that's been around for a few million years. Yeah, Chris, that's why I had to send you this uh, chunk that I found because it just blew my mind that this stunning physique, this muscular mm. shoulder hump area and the size and the horns, that's been that way for a really long time. They evolved that way for a reason, right? And for me, it's another reason for why care. Like this is a, from my point of view, this is an ancient uh, bovid species that we need to make sure stays wild and living in the wild and doesn't go extinct. Yeah. Well, one of the things before we, we jump into some other physiology is when we look at rev evolutionary relationships, we look at chromosome counts. The Gower has 56 chromosomes. So that's 28 chromosomes from mom, 28 chromosomes from dad. Cattle have 60. Uh, if Now you can't produce hybrids. This is what I found interesting. I found this, this little... Uh, uh, tidbit of info in, in repro because I, I love talking about like hybrids like making mules or or ligers we talked way back is that could that happen in nature no they're not natural it doesn't it doesn't happen we don't, don't have any do it don't promote we don't it. we don't we <laughs> get don't on my have, soapbox <laughs> we don't have liger fossils we we've never found it whatever those those people say that do this no they are not natural uh, but cattle have 60, yak have 60, zebu cattle have 60, bison have 60 chromosomes. So the gower is out there. You know, it, it, it is definitely an evolutionary, uh, unique species to most other cattle. And then when you do breed them, cattle and gower, the females are fertile, but the males are infertile like we see in, in all these other hybrids. Actually, most cattle, if you breed yak and cattle the american cattle uh or american bison actually the females are fertile but the males are infertile so i like to see what those look like the just old studies anyways uh off my soapbox with that it just shows that that the gowers are uh, different than some of these other cow cattle species or bovid species that we see switching to physiology yay yeah i've been waiting I'm I'm not going to talk too much. It's live up to 30, 20 to 30 is what they see or say uh, in the wild or under human care. One thing I, I thought was was cool, because I always look up speeds. They can run up to 35 miles an hour. What is that, like 55 kilometers per hour? Like they're as fast as some horses. Like these things can book it. They're not as fast as pronghorn el uh, antelope, but a, a Mac, there's a Mack truck. That thing's, that thing's huge. And yes. fast. Yes. And yeah. You don't want to mess with it. You're not no. going to be able to outrun them. <laughs> and they're <laughs> agile. They can jump over fences. They, yeah, these things are, are massive beasts and, you know, great sense of hearing, uh, great sense of smell, decent eyesight to survive, to avoid being preyed upon by tigers. And, and then they have this, the spiny process. I have a skeleton in front of me looking at it. Oh my gosh, Chris. Jinx. Me too. Yeah, Great minds yeah. think alike. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we talk about it. This, this was it the thoracic vertebrae. Oh my gosh. Yes, exactly. It's well, the very tail end of their cervical vertebra, uh, but then moving into the thoracic ver mm -hmm. vertebra, uh, the spinous process, which we have and on ours, but theirs uh, is very, very well, developed and and we see this in horses as well uh for horses though if you can picture it they have a higher thoracic vertebra spinous process so in the horse their withers their teeny tiny hump compared to uh bison uh basically is t1 so it's thoracic vertebra one 
through about five or six, it starts to taper down. Mm-hmm. And for horses, that's a really great place to put a saddle because it stops it from like sliding forward. Uh, but it's just not extremely prominent unless you've ridden a horse bareback certain breeds and <laughs> And that withers or that uh, those thoracic vertebrae, the spines process of them can be a little ouchy, but mm-hmm. nothing, nothing compared to what we see in the Gower. And that's why I took a whole slide and just put the skeleton up because it's just so fascinating to look at the bones of this creature because the spinous process of their thoracic vertebra are huge running down pretty much the whole length and only kind of start to taper down uh, where the ribs end and basically the lumbar vertebra begin. And it's just an incredible design. And I always like to tie physiology to function and then tie all that into evolution. Or actually, I like Chris to do a little bit more of that. But I mean, but why have these huge spikes on their on their vertebral column, right? Uh, that run their whole backbone for the most part. Uh, it's just, inc- I mean, it's incredible. But the reason they have these spinous processes that are very, very long. I mean, geez, I'm just eyeballing it here. But what do you think, Chris? Like a foot? I, that's uh, what I'm looking. I I can't. I'm. I've looked everywhere to more than six inches, and this is just the. Oh no! It's process. it's a foot. It's a foot. It's just okay. from I, their back up. Yeah. It's got to be. I'm looking at the 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 skeleton of it, and I cannot, for the life of me, find the length of it. But if I think, okay, that's six feet tall. Those thoracic vertebrae from the back stick up at least a foot, at yeah. least twelve inches. Yeah. yeah. It's- and then, of course, this is looking at the skeleton, but then I actually tried to pull, I, I couldn't really find any of the Indian bison, but I found a pretty good 3D muscle animations of the American bison. Mm-hmm. So all the muscle that's laid down around this spinous process to attach to the scapula and the cervical vertebra and, the, and then the rib cage, I mean... They needed to be strong, right? That's a given. Uh, mm-hmm. The stronger, the better for the horns, um, probably for some of their behavioral components. But this spinous process of the thoracic vertebra allowed them to build more and more and more muscle. Because muscle has to have something to attach from point A mm-hmm. to point B, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. it's always uh, – and that's the whole goal of it, right? Uh, ligaments attach bone to bone, tendons attach bone to muscles, and then muscles – lay down all of it. So for me, it's just a beautiful skeleton. We all know that I love mm-hmm, <laughs> horns and hooves, but man, uh, it's just, it's just fascinating to see it. And then, and then when you look at just a picture of, of the Gower and you see all this muscling that I'm talking about, then you'll start to understand why I was so giddy talking about the spinous process of a thoracic vertebra, right? That's probably mm-hmm, not mm-hmm, that fun mm-hmm. of conversation. But it really is because it, it forms this hump. And, of course, the, uh, the American bison have one as well. Uh, I don't know if we, we – we covered the bison many, many moons ago. We did. Right? It is a while ago, episode 90, so uh, almost 300 episodes ago, quite sure. a while ago. I have no idea if I talked about the spinous process on that one. Uh, I don't know if we did. Somebody take a listen, critique me. Uh, but I, I, we were probably more blown away by their conservation story because they were down to so few individuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, like 600, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, and probably telling more of that that side of the story, but uh, at any rate, that's why we do this podcast because I'm like a little kid in a candy shop, and certain physiology, certain weeks just really get me revved up and get me excited. And uh, this was one of them. The, in, the Indian bison hump, I just it's incredible. And then when you think about the muscling, so around basically around the shoulder blades and around this tall foot tall spinous process of the uh, thoracic vertebra lay the trapezius muscle. And this muscle uh, is diamond shaped kind of in humans backs, but, uh, and similar in, um, in these cattle, but so big and so powerful. And that of course helps uh, the neck move up and down as well and support the shoulders, keeps the shoulders in place where they're supposed to be. Uh, But then behind that, 
lies a really big muscle called the latissimus dorsi. And these are more going to be your superficial muscles. Of course, there's a lot of other muscles that I'm, I'm not really paying mentioning uh, for lack of time. But the latissimus dorsi is a fun one that basically lays across the thoracic vertebra in the middle. So maybe from like T5 downward. And whenever I'm teaching anatomy class, especially when I used to teach human anatomy uh, a while back, I always uh, called that the, um, the hugging muscle because it's when you go to hug another human, mm -hmm. you're contracting your latissimus dorsi. Mm -hmm. So that muscle is just massive as well on these uh, Indian bison. And uh, yeah, and it forms this muscly hump-like appearance. But I would say the hump to me is not quite as prominent as the American bison, but way more muscling, or at least it appears that way from photos. Well, if, if you do, so I, I was able, while you're talking, look up a uh buffalo skeleton theirs is pretty big too but if you compare it, it it the bison's got that big muscular hump that is part of their back when you look at the gower it is like he's been in the gym doing head lifts all day or she and that muscle is ripped mm -hmm. it's ripped it's so unique when you see them you're like wow it is one of the most unique looking uh, hoof stock i think i've i've seen yeah, yeah. And I guess I should be using the technical term. Uh, it's called the dorsal ridge of mm -hmm. the uh, of, of the thoracic vertebra. And the Gowers have 13 pairs of ribs. So this dorsal ridge of the spinous process uh, runs down the whole thing. But according to the literature, the peak, the tallest one, which doesn't say the size, that's where Chris and I are guesstimating, uh, is uh, right above the fifth or sixth rib. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, uh, just really. It's big. It is. It's, it is. It's, it's fun. And uh, the other thing, too, is like with this hump, just to clear it up, that it is, it's muscle. There, of course, there's some fat in there, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, and, but it's not um, a hump like a, when you think of a camel. We, we covered Bactrian camels, many, that was a while back, too, as yeah. well, uh, where those humps are all fat for the most part. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. So definitely different than that. And uh, when I was reading about nutrition, it did say that, that uh, the dorsal ridge muscles and fat uh, or the hump, if you will, does change a little bit in size depending on their nutritional status, of course. Um, and it will deplete when they're under uh, undernourished, but it's, it's not in the same way that uh, we see with the camel. Well, one of the, the other physiologies that I think would be fun to talk about thermoregulation because they, they live in, you know, hot, warm climates. I mean, they, they, we do find them obviously up in elevation, but if you think of them in Thailand or the lowlands of India, it is hot. And so they have unique structures. One of the things is, is they have more skin. So they have a dewlap, which hangs underneath them which Angie was talking about, we we're talking about boss indicus cattle, those zebu looking cattle have humps and then they have these dewlaps that help them thermoregulate. So that when you have more skin, it's, it's greater surface area to lose heat. So the, the body will pump blood to the skin and they sweat and then they, that helps evaporative cooling. So they will cool off, also breathe in, in other ways. When we're cold, you know, or an animal's cold, the capillaries around the, the extremities will constrict. So there's less blood flowing there. So that's why like we, we get into things with uh, frostbite and stuff because there's less blood flow there. Anyways, one of the things, cool things they do as far as diet, I mean, just herbivore grass, grass, more grass, maybe some leaves, maybe some shoots of plants things like that. And they're just basically ruminants, like we've talked about in other cattle species, Cape Buffalo, bison. Chris, you're making it sound so boring. <laughs> I have like five slides on their nutrition. Uh, but I will, I for the sake of time and for our listeners, I will speed it up. But but, <laughs> but yes, uh, the gower is ruminant, right? So it's... Uh, it's kind of fun to think about because they are so large. Uh, and as a true ruminant, they have the four chambers of their stomach, right? Chris, can you name them? Oh, geez. I just taught this like last semester. Abamasum, uh, Amasum, 
uh, reticulum and yes, rumen? very good. Rumen, reticulum, oh, omasum, yeah, and okay, abomasum. Okay. And remember that that's where yeah. there are four gut fermenters, uh, bovines. So the rumen uh, microbes ferment the cellulose and the food that they eat to produce volatile fatty acids, VFAs, which is actually one of the cow's main sources of energy. And the microbes also mm-hmm, pro- mm-hmm. produce vitamin B, vitamin K, and other amino acids. So really, really important, completely different than how our stomachs function. Uh, very, very cool. And But Chris, what I found really fascinating and perhaps different than the American bison and uh, our domestic cattle is, yes, gowers will eat grass, um, but different studies had different percentages. And so uh, one study I found uh, and out of uh, Thailand said that they collected feces, which we, you know, I love, they collected feces and they, uh, they, they looked at a whole bunch of different samples and they guesstimated that only about 44% of the feces was actual grass fragments. Uh, they thought that uh, they were doing a little bit more browsing in this department in this uh, reserve where they were studying them. And this was an awesome article I found out of the Zoological Science Journal from 2018 called Food and Feeding Habits of the Gaur in the Highlands of Central India. And this is a case study at Pinch Tiger mm-hmm. Reserve. So, uh, yeah, there was uh, a lot of other browse items, leaves, twigs. Uh, there was other studies showing that depending on the season, their food preference will uh, vary. And there was another study, maybe this is one in India, where 87% of their diet composed of leaves, which that would put them in the browser category, right? Yeah, Yeah, 87%. And they're also known to eat shoots. Uh, They forage a lot in bamboo. And they will eat bark. And this is often recorded in the summertime. So researchers aren't sure if it's due to a shortage of minerals perhaps in the forage that they are consuming or just time of year. So the the bark from the teak tree has really high concentrations of calcium and phosphorus. And so that might help satisfy some of the Gower's mineral needs. But once again, they're not entirely sure. And then when you look at conservation from a nutritional point of view uh, for some of these browsers, which we know with our African black rhinos, and which are a browsing species, when they're housed under human care, we have a really hard time mimicking their diet as browsers. And because of that, they have nutritional issues from the way we feed them because we just can't mm-hmm. quite mimic what they eat because it's just so different. And so anyways, when you think of having to make sure that these cattle have enough land to be wild and to reproduce and have the the correct diet they need can be a significant factor when it comes to their conservation biology, which, uh, no offense, you know, I love you brother, but just classifying them as like a ruminant grazer. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> hey, 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 I, I'm going to say that was way more interesting than what I put together. So I tip my hat to you. Yeah, yes. So, uh, but one, but once again, why I was excited earlier in the podcast and why I'm still excited tonight at like 1030 my time is because mm-hmm. There's people studying this stuff, right? Uh, and here, here's another paper that I found, nutritional hab, um, food nutrition research in Thailand, in Khao Yi National Park in Thailand by researchers there, trying to figure out what they're studying, why it's important, why care, and how this helps their conservation biology. And this, my friend, was in a Nature article. Okay. So yeah. okay. you know, Good. you know, if you hit Nature, you're uh, uh, doing pretty well. So. Um, so this was yeah. a, this was a scientific yep, yep. report, so not quite as uh, a little step down from the journal, but still. So, yes, uh, we're still learning a lot about them. But I also what this tells me, what I'm hypothesizing about them from what I read, is that they are flexible, and uh, I do think that flexibility will help them survive. But we need to make sure that uh, we learn more about them, learn more about what they're eating, why they're eating, what they're eating, when they're eating it. Uh, to help protect those plant species and overall the conservation biology of the um, gower. Well, and just to, you know, two weeks ago we were talking about your research with rhinos, and and so yeah, I can see why you get excited about it because you know we, we when we brought them under human care. I love eating and pooping. 
<laughs> and all animals, humans included, all yeah. of it. Uh, so yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. With three, with three babies. Yeah, you've been there, done that. Uh, Still doing it. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> well, getting into behaviors, and you know, we talked about they they have been as as prey species for tiger, but. You know, I, I just imagine a tiger would have a tough time tackling some of these larger males and stuff. So, are they big herd animals like we see with the Cape buffalo? Or are they individuals, small uh, herds? Yes and no, actually. Yeah. So, when it comes to grouping, they typically form smaller herds, uh, anywhere from like I was reading eight to 30, maybe up to 50. But uh, the herd will usually contain an adult bull and several cows. And juveniles, but also bulls. Sometimes there won't be a bull, depending on time of year it is. And bulls may form some bachelor herds, or they're quite frequently seen solitary. And so, regardless, as a bovine species, a herd species, whether it's just uh, females and a matriarch female, there she'll be dominant. So some of the articles suggested that they're more run by the dominant female. But then other articles suggested that when the male is around, that he's the dominant one and the herd structure will uh, kind of unfold from there. But then just after really trying to dive deep into literature is honestly, there's just a lot of absence and details of studying her dynamics mm-hmm. of these guys, especially with their numbers were dwindling for so long and then they live in the forests and things like that. So they just, uh, we need more solid data on how herds are formed, how they're maintained and how they change over time. And of course how, and we see this a lot in wild horses and all of our, all of our pack or herd animals like uh, wolves. It's not just this simple dominant and subordinate. It's usually when you actually study the dynamics is much, much more complex than that. And, and that has been suggested by some of, some of what I was reading is that, yeah, there, we need to dive a little bit deeper. But um, together, the herds will wander anywhere from uh, one to three miles a day looking for food. Males can be aggressive with each other if it's during breeding season or they're territorial. But in general, most aggression is what we call ritualized, which basically just means it's to try to say like, hey, I'm a little tougher than you. Leave me alone. And usually the one that's not quite as tough or strong or as younger will be like, okay. So there's this this fighting, which you can find a couple of videos online. I saw a video of, of two bull gowers going at it and it was wow, impressive when they mm-hmm. when they hit each other with their horns and kind of move each other around from side to side and stuff. But in general, there's not a ton of aggression between them. It's more just like threats, if you will. But in the wild, gowers are typically classified as diurnal, so hanging out and eating during the day. But what they've learned is in areas where there's a lot more humans around uh, and impacts of humans on the forest, uh, these gowers have become largely nocturnal Mm. in certain parts of India. And they're hardly ever seen um, after eight in the morning, which is different than what their natural history says. And so once again, I, I think we're learning more about that, but they're very flexible, which is really interesting. But how is that impacting their diet? How is that impacting their reproduction? Uh, those I don't think we have answers to. But what is known in regards to their behavior is although they're big and bold and can be aggressive to humans, uh, if a human gets too close, there have been a few reports of um, Boss frontalis, which is the domesticated version of the Indian bison, uh, killing humans that got, have gotten too close or encroached on them or surprised them. It, but in general, um, the gower is actually very shy and tries to avoid humans at all costs. Uh, and that's why they're changing their behavior and only coming out at nighttime in certain areas. Yeah, it is interesting. And, and I'm sure other species around the world have, and we know they have, you know, they've adapted to urban environments, things like that. So uh, communication, one of your favorite things? <laughs> well, yes, I am in love with the Gower for so many reasons, but mm. one of my favorite things this whole week was reading how other scientists described the vocalizations made by the Gower. Mm. 
So the various vocalizations have been described in the literature as grunts, moos, high-pitched snorts, growling, uh, snorts, whistles. But my favorite was from the in the article that I mentioned at the very beginning of the podcast uh, in Mammalogy. So to quote this paper, call of the gower has been described by many naturalists in their own words as the most absurd piping or whistling sound, more like the call of a bird than anything else. And absurd because such a strange sound emanates from an animal so large and powerful. Another one. A most peculiar sound, a cross between the bulging of a wapati, elk, and the trumpeting of an elephant, but at the same time, a melodious sound that carries a long way like a song. So do we have any audio? No, <laughs> I don't. I found oh. a few, I found a few um, videos, but there's other music in the background and they don't capture that. So I want to leave the listeners just wanting more and maybe you can send me uh, an Indian bison vocalization and see if it captures, uh, ca- if, if we can capture that because I sometimes, uh, I've been trying to, I've been reading Harry Potter to my, uh, to my big boys and, and then we watch the movie after mm-hmm. we read the, the book and they're always like, oh man, the book is so much better. And mm-hmm. I love that they're already thinking along those lines because, I mean, you really can't go wrong with Harry Potter in any, whether it's the book or the movie, but yeah, yeah. I, I sometimes I think words are actually better than than the real thing so but i would love i I would love a call uh as anything with hooves and horns i want to hear what they have to say so uh yeah all right all right so with these beautiful songs between an elk and an elephant and everything else (laughs) reproduction you know what are we looking at uh with this yeah well i mean you hit the nail on the head chris so the male bull gower will make this mating call uh with clear resonant tones, which can carry for up to a mile when it is, uh, when the female is in estrus. What researchers do know is that gowers are not necessarily seasonal breeders as calves can be born all year round, but there does seem to be a peak around December to June and a female, her breeding interval is going to be anywhere from 12 uh, to 15 months. And when the female is in estrus, so high estrogen and emitting pheromones that the male can sense and smell, he'll make these beautiful calls uh, to hopefully attract her. And their courtship is pretty cute. Uh, There's a lot of licking involved. So, and anybody who's ever hung around a cow I mean, if you haven't been licked by a cow, you haven't lived, in my opinion. Uh, cow's tongues are really rough. Uh, I'm thinking of a dairy mm-hmm. cow off the top mm-hmm. of my head, but I've been licked by by several types of cows. And it's fun. It's kind of, it's like rough and it hurts, but it's also like they just do it all the time. So you kind of have to get used to it. Uh, and and I'm always, I was always under the assumption that that, that meant that they liked me. That was probably maybe a little bit too much of anthropomorphizing because they're just cows or liquors. And so um, whether they're doing it for social reasons or who knows what, but in this case, the male will uh, lick the female and and her neck and shoulders and her rump uh, for a long time, five, 10 minutes or so. And the male will do the Fleming response, which we talk a lot about with our equid species, but also several bovines will, they raise that upper lip. They look like they're smiling, if you will. When the, after a male and female do copulate, um, the female gower, her gestation period is about 270 to 280 days. So that's a fair amount of time. And let's do the quick math. Is that similar to humans? Because I know our domestic cattle are nine months, just like us humans. So what's 280 days, Chris? Yeah, just over nine months. Okay, so similar to us, so bless their hearts. That's not a short period of time. And uh, when the female is ready to give birth, she will typically separate herself from the herd to give birth alone. And it's been reported that she'll stay away from the herd for up to like four days or so. Mm -hmm. Uh, The young calf, oh, talk about darling. The young gowers are light orange brown in color. So completely contrast to the dark, almost black color of the adults. And they don't have their white stockings yet. So the white stockings will develop around three months of age in both sex. And the calf coat hair will eventually change to the dark 
color of the adults, but boy, are they darling youngsters. Oh my gosh. I just so cute. There's been reports that cats around two months old, of course, who are still suckling um, from the cow will actually be hidden and laying down motionless, uh, trying to be still as possible. Uh, Flat out, they'll lay with their necks actually flat out, not like tucked in like a fawn and basically trying to be motionless uh, and hold still as probably evolutionary strategy to stay quiet and not die from those tigers that you mentioned, Chris. Mm -hmm. The Gower calves will stick close to mom for up to nine months nursing. Um, and so they're typically weaned uh, after nine months. However, they'll stick around their mom's side at least till they're a year and a half, almost two years old. And females and males uh, become mature between two and three years of age. Well, and it's 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 not a quick generational interval like we see with other species. So probably upwards of eight to ten years. And just to, to highlight again, uh, they are vulnerable. A population up to thirty thousand, maybe twenty thousand. So. They're they're not they're they're we still got to monitor them you know and India is and Thailand is and these other countries but one thing you can do and and when Angie was was talking about teak is 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 making me think of wood sustainable wood is always a big one and you know illegal logging throughout the world it is endangering a lot of species so just a quick list you can always just go Google's your friend look up sustainable wood. Uh, like looking for furniture and things like that just types of wood that are that are supposed to be sustainable black cherry wood beech wood hard maple wood ash wood eastern red cedar wood mango wood and then of course bamboo bamboo is highly sustainable so these are woods that they're hardwoods they're good for furniture they grow quickly the trees can be replenished so it just just as a tip, if you're ever buying wood products or furniture, check where it's from, check the wood type, see if it's sustainable or not, because there is a lot of illegal harvesting of some very unique woods, hardwoods especially, that uh, is is endangering species because people are going in and cutting down their, their homes. So uh, any organization you want to highlight this week? Yeah, well, I want to give a big shout out uh, for the Gower this week to the worldlandtrust.org. This is a group I know I've highlighted before uh, because they're really, really important. Their main approach is the conservation of species, both plant and mammal. And their approach is super awesome is they basically buy land and partner with tons of conservation organizations uh, to either purchase or lease threatened land and to create nature reserves, protecting both the habitat and the wildlife in the area. And so this organization is definitely involved in India and Thailand, and they partner with different groups there. And this is a great way that People can get involved from their couch because they they have events, they have um, fundraising, they have gifts, they have corporate sponsors, they have friends of the World Land Trust organization. Of course, they're on social media. So I really like what they're doing. Uh, I think it's a very smart approach and a helpful one. And I think that the Gower is one of the many species to benefit from what they do. No, yeah, it's 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 always good to see these organizations and and working, uh, you know, around the world to preserve these animals, and the Gower is is one of them, and uh, you know, it's just a it's 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 a ma- it's the it's the biggest bovid on earth. This is probably the biggest podcast we've done in a while. <laughs> in a while, <laughs> and we've got a good list coming. We really do, and so just you know, uh, s- saddle up, get ready. We've got some great species coming your way. Uh, some some more interviews in the works as uh, people are reaching out to us. So I'm, I'm excited for that. And just excited to, to, to get back at it after uh, a couple months of dealing with some stuff with family. But Angie and I are back home, ready to go. And I can't wait to record again in a few days, Angie. we got a great species coming. Thank you, everyone, for listening, sharing, and caring. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.